Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. By now, you're quite aware that on Tuesday, Democrats released two articles of impeachment against President Trump. The first is for abuse of power. This article deals with the alleged pressure campaign to get the Ukrainians to announce an investigation into the Bidens. And the second? For obstruction of Congress. Because President Trump refused to cooperate with the investigation, instead instructing witnesses to defy subpoenas. And after an acrimonious markup process that stretched on for more than 14 hours on Thursday, the Judiciary Committee reconvened on Friday morning to vote on the articles of impeachment. Mr. Chairman, there are 23 ayes and 17 noes. Your article is agreed to. Without objection, the committee is adjourned. And with that, the articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump head to the House for a vote. Here to talk to us about these articles and what they may mean for the political process is Nick Fandos, congressional correspondent for The New York Times. Nick, thank you so much for coming in. It's my pleasure. So let's get right down to business. The question for you is there had been a lot of debate among Democrats for some time now about what these articles would look like, how many articles to bring up, what would be included in those. How did they ultimately come down to just having those two articles in there, abuse of power and obstruction. Yeah, you're right. There was a there was a spirited debate for some time. And, and to answer this question, you have to go back in time a little bit and remember that this past summer when the House was debating impeachment um, at a kind of lower temperature, the topic was all Robert Mueller and his report mm-hmm. on Russian election interference and potential obstruction of justice by President Trump. And there were Democrats, including the Judiciary Committee, that spent months trying to put together a case, uh, particularly around obstruction of obstruction of justice, uh, and build support for impeachment within the caucus. And you know, more than half of House Democrats seemed to be on board with that by the time in early September that this anonymous whistleblower complaint that turned out to have to do with Ukraine kind of fell in Congress's lap and really scrambled the whole conversation. And so at that point, the House decided to set aside uh, the Mueller-related misconduct for, you know, however long it took to figure out what happened with Ukraine and agreed we'll revisit it at the end. Well, that's what they did in the last few weeks. They revisited this issue. And there were some, including Chairman Nadler from the Judiciary Committee uh, and some other Democratic chairmen, some progressives in the caucus, the second and third ranking Democrats in the House, that seemed to be in favor of adding a third article of impeachment on obstruction of justice related to the Mueller report. But ultimately, um, Chairman Adam Schiff from the Intelligence Committee, Speaker Pelosi and others decided that they wanted a narrower case, that that would likely do a better job of holding together Uh, the full Democratic caucus of keeping moderates on board and let them make a a more streamlined case to the American public that, hey, what the president is doing with regard to Ukraine, and we think that this is an ongoing threat to the 2020 election, uh, this is urgent and different, and that's why we're acting. It's not part of the same old fights. So we are now looking at a vote of the full House, And I've seen reports and interviews with some of these vulnerable freshman Democrats, including many of those who voted to start the investigation process, saying or at least implying that they're not really sure how they're going to vote on impeachment. I'm wondering what's going on here 
And if Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership is nervous, they'll lose a number of Democrats on this vote and what that would say about the overall process. Right. I think that there are a few things going on. One, a vote to impeach the president, particularly if you're from a district where he won in 2016, is just a very hard thing to do. Um, I think at the end of the day, Democratic leaders are confident that they're going to have the vast majority of their caucus, that the number of people voting against impeachment among the Democrats will be under 10, perhaps. But it's going to take people a while to search their conscience and figure out an explanation to give to their voters for why they're going to do that. You know, there may be some lawmakers who voted to advance this impeachment inquiry earlier on. Uh, who are now giving it some second thoughts. Uh, We reported this week that there was a small group that discussed trying to build support for bipartisan censure Mm -hmm. of the president. Um, Ultimately, they agreed, and I think this is accurate, that that's unlikely at this point, uh, that it's not worth it. And and many of those folks will probably end up voting for impeachment itself. But, you know, Democrats are not, Nancy Pelosi's not trying to twist arms here. She's made it very clear that members need to vote Uh, as they see fit on an issue like this. So there are likely to be, whether it's one handful or two handful, some folks crossing party lines. And given that there are, it's very unlikely any Republicans will do the same and come over and vote for these articles, if the number of Democratic defections creeps up, uh, I think that there is some fear among the leadership that it could make their case look weaker or undermine their position a little bit as they head into a trial in the Senate. Uh, likely beginning Mm. early next year. Right. That's a good point. And the other issue seems to me that when this started, it seemed like Democrats were incredibly united sort of across the caucus, liberals, moderates, all kind of on the same page. And as the process has worked its way through, you just have seen more, maybe the words nervousness, but certainly a sense that boy, this hasn't galvanized the public in support of impeachment in the way maybe some of them thought it would. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I mean, it's always going to be easier to vote to open an inquiry, to ask Uh for more information than to vote to impeach the president of the United States and potentially remove him from office. But, you know, I I think there were some Democrats, perhaps they were overly optimistic, perhaps they were naive, who felt that when the facts were aired, if if the story lined up as they thought it was and played out in public hearings, that the public would be engaged and it would move opinions. And that just, whether it's because uh, this nation is, is so factionalized um, and gets its information from such separate places or because the facts themselves are unconvincing, time will tell. Uh, but, but that kind of change hasn't happened. And so I think you have a lot of Democrats now scratching their heads and saying, well, I believe this case and I believe it's troubling and urgent, but what if my voters don't? What if you know impeachment is underwater in my district? What do I do in that case? And and I don't think that that's a comfortable place for any of these folks to be in because, you know, remember, they they many of them that, well, I'll say the Democrats took back the majority in 2018 on, you know, kind of kitchen table issues, health care, mm-hmm. paychecks, prescription drug pricing, things like that. This is not why a lot of these moderate, they call the majority makers, envisioned from their first term in Congress. So after the vote in the House... Things move on to the Senate. We have a Senate trial that begins, uh, looks like 
sometime after the first week in January. And there's been a lot of back and forth about what this trial could look like. And um, I'm wondering, Nick, if you can help us understand what the latest thinking is on this. The baseline rules that the Senate has adopted for a trial suggest that there'll be some organizational effort to get the thing set up, and then the trial will take place six days a week. The chief justice will oversee it, and senators, a majority of senators, will basically call the shots. But we've started to get, as as the impeachment has seemed more and more likely, clearer statements from Mitch McConnell, who is the uh, Kentucky Republican, who's the Senate Majority Leader, and, and will call uh, a lot of the shots. And uh, what he said, you know, as it, as it became clear that he would have this case, is that he's going to be working very closely with the White House, hand in glove with the White House. And everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position as to uh, how to handle this. To try and run the trial as they see fit. Um, and that he prefers a shorter rather than a longer trial, perhaps a couple of weeks rather than a month, Um, and that he predicts that there is next to no chance that 67 senators or two-thirds of the Senate will vote to remove President Trump. Now, there's some uh, uncertainty because any group of 51 senators, a simple majority, could band together to change the rules, to call witnesses, to dismiss the case, to press it onward. Um, and so, you know, it's it's going to be a fascinating process to see if some of the more institutionally minded Republicans or Republicans who tend to be swing votes will align with Democrats to make the process longer or look different than McConnell and the White House would like. Well, that's the interesting point, Nick. Mitch McConnell, yes, he needs to work hand in glove with the White House in large part because he's learned the lesson here over these last couple of years, which is... No matter what he wants to do, the president has the bully pulpit and the tweeting, and it's very hard to get anything done if the president's not with you. At the same time, Mitch McConnell has to look out for his own incumbents, especially those who are up for reelection. And he may see that what the White House wants to do is going to put his members in a difficult spot. How does that work out, do you think? This is going to be, a, um, for those of us watching it, a really interesting thing to watch for the reasons that you're pointing out. I think that there's a lot of gaming going on right now to try to determine what the trial will look like and what witnesses the White House might want to call and the prosecution might want to call and who they'd approve and who they wouldn't. My guess is that until senators you know, sit down in the chamber and take their oath, Uh, and see the case that's presented before them, it's a little hard to predict Mm -hmm. uh, everything that's going to happen. And, you know, he he is going to have to see in real time, what is Susan Collins, one of my uh, more vulnerable Republicans who's up for re-election in a blue state, what is she going to want out of this? What about Cory Gardner from Colorado? What might we do to put some of the Democrats who are in vulnerable seats uh, in in a situation that puts them under political pressure. Essentially, I think he's going to, at the end of the day, want a trial that looks to most Americans as if it it at least had passing fairness. But I'm not mm-hmm. sure if um, the majority leader uh, will conclude or has concluded that, you know, he needs to bend over backwards to extend a hand to, to the House and the Democrats there uh, for the case that they're offering. Nick, before I let you go, is there anything else that you think people should be focused on 
as this process moves ahead? Maybe things that haven't gotten enough attention. A question that's somewhat an old question will become a new one once again, which is, does the prosecution, does the House, when it's there at the Senate trial, or senators themselves, try to call up some of the witnesses that evaded the impeachment inquiry, people like John Bolton or Mick Mulvaney um, or their deputies, who may be able to shed additional light on the facts of the case and were closer to the president, could either undercut the case or strengthen it considerably and force them to you know, reconsider their political positions, they being the Republican and Democratic senators, respectively. Um, and so that's one of the questions that going forward, I think, is potentially the most consequential. And again, I don't think we'll know until the Senate trial begins. But for many of those witnesses, you know, it's a, it's a very different thing to have a Senate trial over whether to convict or acquit a sitting president, request your presence, than just a, a House impeachment inquiry. Um, so uh, it'll be, a, it'll be a, a tough calculus for them to make and one that could produce pretty unexpected results. Nick Fandos, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Amy. Impeachment isn't something that comes around very often. This is only the fourth time in American history that articles of impeachment have been drafted against a sitting president. We also know that high crimes and misdemeanors isn't a legal term. It's a political one. It is improper for the president of the United States to demand a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent. The barrage of allegations directed at Ambassador Yovanovitch, a career ambassador, is unlike anything I have seen in my professional career. Was there a quid pro quo? The answer is yes. And one that gets filtered through an increasingly polarized media environment. Well, reaction is pouring in after House Democrats just moments ago announced two articles of impeachment against President Trump. New CNN reporting reveals what the Senate trial might look like, and it's possible President Trump will not be happy about it. Since this is such a rare event, members of Congress don't have a lot of institutional knowledge to help guide them through this process. Some of them were around in 1998 and 1999 for the Clinton impeachment. Others remember the Nixon impeachment process. But the political repercussions for both of those events played out very differently and in very different political eras. Applying lessons from those to today isn't helpful or really appropriate. To help us understand how the two parties think impeachment will play in 2020, I spoke with Tiffany Muller, president and executive director of End Citizens United. Her organization supported many of the freshman Democrats elected in 2018 and who were under a lot of pressure on this impeachment vote. The House has passed 400 bills. And on the same day that the articles of impeachment actually came out was also the same day that the trade deal uh, was announced. So I think what the House is actually showing is that they're able to both walk and chew gum at the same time. And the impeachment numbers themselves don't really seem to be moving in these districts. So I think that what you're going to see is most of these frontline Democrats uh, and moderates and national security members 
really being very thoughtful uh, about this vote, but also trying to just really communicate back home to voters the day-to-day of what they've been doing to help deliver on the promises that they made during the campaign. So do you think that all this money that is being spent right now against these frontline freshman members is just not going to make much of a difference when we hit next year when we're in the middle of the 2020 elections and that the issue of impeachment is just not going to have the same sting or impact that it does now? I do think that. I think that a vote on impeachment is a very, very serious vote and one of the most uh, serious votes that a member of the House can take. And yet at the same time, I think we have so burned voters out Um I think it's part of why we're not seeing the public hearings move much uh, in terms of the polling on this. I I think that by November of next year that we're going to have moved on from this conversation and be talking instead about how they've been delivering for their voters, how they kept their promises, how they're continuing to clean up corruption in Washington. And impeachment won't be the central argument in this election. Even if this issue does not necessarily resonate by the time we hit 2020, it is motivating Republican candidates, maybe who wouldn't have been interested in running before, from getting into these races. I think that impeachment has become very polarizing and has really motivated the bases in both sides. I think that you've seen the Republicans use it to fundraise and to build up these big war chests and to be able to go up on the air earlier. I think you see on the Democratic side that the base is very motivated by it as well. And I think really what we're all trying to fight for is those independents and swing voters in the middle who, frankly, are pretty overwhelmed by the amount of information mm-hmm. uh, coming at them all the time. I mean, Jared Golden up there in Maine, too, who flipped that seat from red to blue, he really ran on cleaning up the system, cleaning up corruption, working for the people, being very accessible, doing his job differently. And he's he's fulfilling that pledge. The very first thing that he did when he got to Washington was support the uh, largest anti-corruption package that we've seen since uh, Watergate that would, you know, make sure everyone has the right to vote, clean up ethics, uh, and start to get money out of politics. Um, He makes it a point to sit through every single hearing in his committee um, and to be very, very accessible to the people and to really travel around his district, which is a pretty big district. I think that what his voters are going to be looking for is who is he in Washington fighting for? Is he fighting for them? And do they believe that he has been true to his promises um, and to being a different kind of representative? Um, or has he gone Washington? And I think in Jared's case, every single day, he is proving that he's a different kind of member of Congress. Do you expect Republicans to use the issue of impeachment in advertising in 2020? I think we'll see. We have, you know, a year left. My guess is that what they'll try to use even more are things like socialism and you know, um, government spending and overreach and immigration. Um, I'm sure that they'll try some open borders things. I think that 
if they think that impeachment will help flip some of these swing districts, that they'll keep using it. But they've been running millions of dollars of ads, and it hasn't been moving the needle at all right now. And Mm -hmm. it seems like as we move farther and further away from this vote, that that's going to be even more the case. So if they're already not being able to move the needle on it, I think they're going to have a really hard time moving the needle on it later. A lot of these Democrats ran saying they weren't interested in coming to Washington to impeach the president, but they were interested in holding him accountable. Do you think that's a message that they use? And do you think Democrats have been effective in explaining why they're choosing to impeach the president? I think we saw after the news broke about the call between the president and the president of Ukraine, I think we saw a pretty big shift in how voters were across the country were feeling about impeachment and about his actions. And I think it's really smart on the Democrats' part to keep it, um, to keep this impeachment inquiry so narrow and to keep it really focused on the fact that um, he with, that the president tried to force Ukraine into doing a political investigation on an opponent and did it by withholding hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid and a White House visit, right? Like the quid pro quo there is really easy for people to understand. And inviting foreign interference into our elections is something that voters are very concerned about and they know it's wrong. The fact that we're like debating whether or not that's a problem is kind of crazy to me. Tiffany Muller, thank you for coming in and talking with me. Well, thank you for having us. Tiffany Muller is president and executive director of End Citizens United. Now we hear from the GOP. Michael McAdams is national press secretary for the National Republican Congressional Committee. I started by asking him if the NRCC is running any ads targeting Democratic House members on the issue of impeachment. So right now we're not running any paid media But what we are doing is we have been very actively reminding the media and these folks' districts what they're doing and how it's affecting uh, their place in re-election. So we're reminding the journalists there and the media and the stories that they're writing on these folks how damaging impeachment will be to their re-election prospects. Michael, what is your pitch to these reporters? Why do you think that this vote is going to be damaging? Well, when you look back at 2018 and the campaign leading up to that, You had a lot of Democrats running in moderate areas, places like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California, uh, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and they promised voters that they would work to deliver solutions to the issues that they cared about most, whether that was drug pricing, USMCA, uh, and they would work with the president. A lot of these folks represented areas that had been Republican for decades. And the pitch that these Democrats made to voters was that they were going to be independent moderates and they were going to work on both sides of the aisle to deliver solutions to these voters. And what we're seeing now is we've seen a year, uh, the last year they've been in office in the majority, they have been focused on one thing, and that's impeaching and removing President Trump from office. And that is not going to play in these districts. Now, another thing happened this week, which was the deal struck between the House and the White House on the new NAFTA or USMCA, so renegotiated trade deal that a bunch of Democrats are going to support. Don't you think that that gives Democrats the opportunity to say, look, we can do two things at once. We hold the president accountable and when we need to work with him on something as important as trade, 
we do it. I don't think so. I mean, it's taken them a year to get to this point. That was a year that these workers could be benefiting from the the trade deal. And so what voters are seeing day in and day out from their representative, which is being covered 24-7 on cable news, it's being covered in their newspapers, is that they are actively trying to impeach and remove President Trump from office. And that's what voters are tuning into. You look at the polling from battleground districts, what voters are picking up on is that their representative is too obsessed with impeaching President Trump to get anything done. And you've heard the concerns from Democrats on their side, uh, a number of different polling on their side from like majority forward from democratic groups has pointed out that their message is not resonating because voters fear that they're too concerned with impeaching the president. And that's what we're seeing here play out still to this day and going to continue into next week. Michael, in these last two years, you know better than anyone else how quickly these news cycles come and go and issues that seem to be really big and important. One week, by the time the next week hits or certainly a month later, that issue sort of fades into the distance. So how do you see this issue playing out in, you know, essentially six, seven, eight months from now when it's very much in the rearview mirror? Sure, you're absolutely right. I mean, these are totally different news cycles we're in right now. But the issue that I think is going to resonate and be a be an issue on the ballot in 2020 when voters are heading to cast their votes is that the folks they elected, the folks that delivered the House majority to Democrats, people like Connor Lamb, people like Max Rose, they promised to be moderates. They promised to be independents and put the voters first. And so Connor Lamb, for example, after he won in 2018, he promised voters that he would he appreciated the support from Trump voters. He knew that he needed their support to win and that he would represent them in Congress. And yet today he came out and supported impeachment. That is the absolute opposite of representing a Trump voter. And he's going to have to answer for that. And with Trump on the ballot in 2020, I think that's only going to exacerbate the fact that these folks will do anything in their power to oppose President Trump at every turn. What about the Republican incumbents who sit in districts that Trump either narrowly won or – and there are fewer and fewer of these – or did not win um, – do you think, though, that they have to explain themselves in their vote against impeachment? I don't think so. I mean, I think voters are interested. But I think when you look at those districts, places like John Katko in mm -hmm. New York 24, Brian Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania, right. I think that the public is on their side. So when you're in places like New York 24 and PA1 that went for Hillary Clinton in 2016, I still think impeachment is not a losing issue there. And they have more than enough basis to prove why they stood with the president and opposing impeachment. What do you think this issue of impeachment has done for recruiting, recruiting Republican candidates? Uh, so I think it's definitely increased recruitment. Right after we saw in Maine too, for example, Jared Golden is the incumbent there, incumbent Democrat. Trump won the district by 10 points in 2016. We had a candidate, Dale Crafts, who came out and he went on the record saying impeachment played a major role in him announcing in places like Pennsylvania 17, Connor Lamb's district. We had Sean Parnell, a Navy veteran, best-selling author, come out and say that he's running. So I think impeachment has only invigorated our recruitment. I think we've already been doing a really good job recruiting. Uh, right now, we have 888 candidates filed to run for office, which is a record. And so I think that has only increased the uh, participation and the involvement of recruiting. What has it done for fundraising for the candidates, 
that you're working with and also for the campaign committee? So I think it's a little bit, it's too early. We obviously haven't seen fourth quarter numbers yet for these candidates, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely been a boon on our side. In the days after the impeachment inquiry we were announced, we had our two largest fundraising days of all time. And that's the momentum has only sped up from there. You look at President Trump's fundraising, what he's done on the days after impeachment, it only echoes the fact that Republican voters are fired up and they're ready to give their money to ensure that President Trump can be reelected, we can flip the House, and we can maintain the Senate. Michael McAdams, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with me. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Here's how I see things. First, November 2020 is a long, long way away. We've had many this-will-change-everything moments in the last two or three years, and ultimately, voters pretty much end up where they started in their opinions of the president. There's also the question of whether Democratic candidates who sit in districts carried by Trump will pay the price for this vote. And if they vote against impeachment, will they lose the support of Democratic voters and donors they need in 2020? Not long ago, a Democrat sitting in a reddish district or a Republican in a bluish one could win year after year by showing his or her independence from the party. Voters in these districts would say, well, you know, I don't really like the president or really do like the president, but, well, my congressman is different from that. Today, however, those distinctions matter less and less. Fewer voters split their tickets. They get to the polls and want to send a message about the president. So even if their incumbent member of Congress has voted in a bipartisan way, their constituents don't give them much credit. There are plenty of Democrats who voted against Obamacare in 2009 and Republicans who voted against the Republican tax bill in 2017, but all found themselves lumped in with their unpopular president and party in the next election. And almost all of them lost. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Politics with Amy Walter from WNYC and PRX in collaboration with WGBH Radio in Boston. Over the last few years, we've heard a lot about the loss of manufacturing and coal mining jobs in this country, jobs that are held primarily by men. But what we don't hear a lot about, either on the campaign trail or in the daily news, is the incredible number of jobs lost in the administrative and support sector. These jobs are largely held by women especially women without college degrees. And these jobs were once a pathway into the middle class for women who otherwise had no access to it. I spoke with Heather Long, economic correspondent for The Washington Post, about her recent article discussing this job drain and what it means for women. There are 2.1 million fewer 
administrative support jobs, as they're called by the Labor Department. And what really struck me when I looked at the data closely is that's not that far off from how many production jobs, those blue-collar jobs we all keep talking about and that were such a focus of the 2016 election. The country's lost about 2.9 million of those since 2000, so a pretty similar uh, situation. And it's pretty similar why the administrative jobs are going away. It's a story mainly of automation and technology, but also of outsourcing. And so many of these women that you interviewed are in their late 40s, 50s, 60s. The idea that they're going to go back to school or get other training just seems really out of reach. I, I got a couple emails about this oh. <laughs> uh, from readers who said, what's wrong with these people? They, they could still go back and retrain at any age, lifelong learning. And I think that's a wonderful concept. And the reality is just a lot different when you go and you try to sit down and train for an entirely new career after 45. You know, one person told me, for not for this story, but for a different story, he said, look, I hadn't been in a classroom in 30 years. It's not that I'm not a smart person, but I didn't even know what a flash drive was. <laughs> you know, there's just a huge hurdle to really get the new knowledge that you need to climb into one of the jobs that are being created in this current economy that pay the 80000 or $100,000. And the people who are losing these jobs in, in their 40s and 50s and 60s are, are just not, by and large, able to make that leap. Heather, why do you think we don't talk enough or maybe even at all about these kinds of jobs, these office jobs, versus the amount of attention that goes to the manufacturing jobs and the steel and coal miners and things like that? Uh, the obvious answer is gender. <laughs> we're, we're not talking enough about what's going on for women. I had a couple of people tweet or email me to point out that the factory jobs that are going away, they are these brawn jobs, these muscle jobs, and that maybe it's harder for those guys, mostly men, to transfer from a hard hat economy to a white collar economy that we have today. Whereas at least these women who are losing these administrative jobs, at least they're already in the service sector, somebody argued to me. People just didn't realize the scale of what was going on mm -hmm. until you really sit down and look at just how many jobs have been lost. And you, and you noted that the Labor Department predicts that these sorts of jobs will see the largest job losses of any occupation in the next 10 years. So That's it's right. going to be even worse. That's right. And as somebody pointed out to me, what's particularly astounding and mind-boggling of all this attention to the manufacturing jobs and very little to administrative jobs is that there are still 18 million people, mostly women, employed in administrative jobs. So even though we've lost, there's still a large number of people who hold these jobs. And if this trend, when everybody's forecasting it will, continues to lose, we're going to have more pain. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot more 
more women facing pain. And again, manufacturing similar trends, but there's about 8 million people left who work in manufacturing. So you can see the difference of the magnitude and when people, presidential candidates like the Andrew Yang and Elizabeth Warrens of the world are out there talking about what happens if all these jobs get automated away. In some ways, there's a lot more jobs to be automated away in administrative than there are in manufacturing. Right, and we hear a lot about truck drivers. I think we've just gendered so much of our economy and the value that we place on women's work, and in particular these roles that are literally identified in some cases as support roles, they're, they're kind of demeaned just in the titles that they're given in some cases. Do you think that the presidential candidates, especially these Democratic candidates, many of whom are talking about sort of wholesale structural economic change, are addressing this group of workers appropriately? There needs to be a lot more. Uh, I think a number of us pulled our hair out in the last Democratic debate, uh, well, the one hosted by CNN, so I guess that's two before, when Aaron Burnett asked a question about automation and mass, potential mass job loss, and the discussion was mostly Andrew Yang and Elizabeth Warren immediately went to truck drivers. Senator Warren, I've been Go talking ahead, to Yang. Americans around the country about automation, and they're smart. They see what's happening around them. Their Main Street stores are closing. They see a self-serve kiosk in every McDonald's, every grocery store, every CVS. Driving a truck is the most common job in 29 states, including this one. Three and a half million truck drivers in this country, and my friends in California are piloting self-driving trucks. What is that going to mean for the three and a half million truckers or the seven million Americans who work in truck stops, motels, and diners that rely upon the truckers getting out and having a meal? Saying this is a rules problem is ignoring the reality that Americans see around us every single day. And so there were just there was just a lot of problems with the way that discussion went. I will say Andrew Yang followed up and wrote a New York Times op-ed, and he did specifically mention bookkeepers and clerks losing these jobs too, which are predominantly women. That it's not just he sort of expanded his knowledge of who's being hurt. Um, but I think I'm hopeful that as we're starting to see more policy come out from the different candidates, that we will see more more ways to address this, whether it's the um, wage and income supplements that Andrew Yang is, is proposing, or whether it's better retraining like Mayor Buttigieg has been really pushing for, a further expansion of different retraining programs. Of course, a number of the candidates have proposals for free community college or for free four-year college. Well, Heather Long, thank you so much for enlightening us. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Women voters are a highly prized political constituency. But when it comes to the intersection of politics and the economy, well, women have often gotten short shrift from politicians and policymakers. As we just heard from Heather Long, changes in the labor market that have had a negative impact on women are much less discussed than the plight of struggling to find work men. To understand the political impact women who are struggling in this new economy could have in 2020, I called up Paige Gardner, founder and president of the Voter Participation Center. Her organization works to increase the participation of historically underrepresented groups in the political process, particularly unmarried women. Unmarried women now are the majority of women in this country, and marital status determines registration rates and voting rates. 
and they register and vote under the numbers that their strength in the voting eligible population suggest. Mm -hmm. So they skew young um, and they skew older. They are much more mobile than married women and they're more stressed economically than, than married women and with children. And so when we think about this group of voters and sort of the issues that are important to them, especially some of the economic issues, you said they are more economically stressed. Can you talk about what issues they are looking at when we're talking about that level of stress? So one is just wages. Um, their wages have not kept up. Two is the infrastructure in this economy to take care of uh, mm. people who are working. For example, paid leave or you know time off if you're sick. Or I mean, these are the things that disproportionately impact unmarried women. They disproportionately impact women, but particularly unmarried women because they are more so in temporary jobs or mo more so in the, you know, quote-unquote gig economy. So tell us a little bit about the kinds of things that you are talking about or you're telling candidates and other political groups to talk about to help encourage these women to be part of the political process. Well, just to talk about their participation rates, mm -hmm. in 2018, 48% of unmarried women cast ballots. And so this is a rate that is not sustainable, given the fact that they are the majority of women in this country, because they are not being given, you know, they are not giving themselves enough power to express what they need and the values and the dreams they have in terms of living in this country. So part of the conversation that candidates need to have with them is it's really about their dreams for this country and their dreams for themselves and how they see themselves um, growing and prospering along with, with this country and the kind of values that some candidates project. So how would that work? What you're, is what you're saying, Paige, like speak more to values, speak more to optimism, speak more to you know, something bigger than that? I think that's right. I mean, candidates need to speak more to an opportunity uh, for these women. It's a picture of what your life could be like and how you could realize your dreams if you had some sort of support system um, going on that was just a part of a public policy discussion. Who do you think is doing that well right now when you're looking at the candidates now running for president? I think most of the candidates understand that there is a huge problem in this country because people can't get ahead and they're struggling. I don't think that there's a particular understanding with a lot of these candidates about how disproportionately this impacts unmarried women. And I certainly don't think they understand that there are 60 million right now unmarried women in this country. They have a lot of power, and candidates need to speak to them. And it's not just about candidate choice, really. It's about whether or not they're going to register and whether or not mm. they're going to participate. So there are two dynamics going on, candidate choice and opting in to the system. When you hear people saying we're going to have record turnout, do you think that these women are part of that? I think that's the fight. 
I think they could be. But if you look at what's happening uh, with President Trump and the incredible registration efforts that they are waging and his campaign is waging, it is going to be a fight every day between now and November of 2020 as to who comprises the electorate. We're seeing motivation on the part of unmarried women, but we're also seeing some turnoff and some discouragement about what's happening in this country and a feeling that is the system rigged? Even if I vote, is the system rigged? So there are lots of concerns that we're seeing among people who are motivated but question the infrastructure of voting now in this country. Well, that's really interesting. So how do you address that? And how do candidates running for president who want those voters convince them that the system is going to count them? My view is people have seen these stories about they go into a polling place and they vote for one person and another person comes up on their ballot. So the question is, you empower people with saying, okay, go vote. If something happens, these are the steps that you can take to remedy something. You walk through the steps that are necessary to make sure you help folks guarantee their power and agency within the electorate. Paige, is there anything that I left out, something that you think we need to understand about women voters, unmarried women voters, and again, especially when we talk about the economic realities for women and its impact on 2020? I think understanding and being able to articulate an understanding of their lives has always been the case. I also think there's a real danger in not only, even though turnout will be high, but among some portion of these women that, one, they'll stay home because they're discouraged about the conversation or the lack of conversation that touches their lives, or they'll go to a third-party candidate and we're seeing some dynamic of that going on right now. I don't want people to feel that, and they should not feel, that participating is something that even though they'll stand in line for four hours at the end of the day, it really won't make a difference because the system is rigged. Paige Gardner, thanks so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. No, thank you very much. Paige Gardner, founder and president of the Voter Participation Center. That's all for us today. One thing we didn't talk much about was presidential politics. The national media has been saturated with impeachment, but Democratic candidates are focused on Iowa, which votes in less than two months, by the way, and increasingly on each other. Now, unlike some some candidates for the Democratic nomination, I am not counting on Republican politicians having an epiphany and suddenly supporting the kinds of tax increases on the rich or big business accountability that they've opposed under Democratic presidents for a generation. Today, it's clear that Elizabeth Warren, once on the rise, is struggling in the polls. In early October, she was tied with Biden in the national polls. Today, polling average shows her slipping to third place. The November Des Moines Register poll shows her almost 10 points behind Pete Buttigieg. This is a big reason for her more aggressive behavior. Next week, Democrats will face each other in the last debate of the year, and I expect we'll see more of this kind of direct confrontation between the candidates. 
What's also become clear is that despite previous expectations that he'd flop, Biden is a more durable candidate that many, especially those in the political chattering class, had expected. His lead nationally in the polls is not as big as it was when he got in this spring, but he's also never lost it. Today, a national polling average shows him up 10 points over Sanders. And that's another durable candidate in this race, Bernie Sanders. Sure, he's lost much of his 2016 support to other candidates, especially to Warren, but his base, especially his base of younger voters, remain committed to him. Overall, this Democratic race is fluid and volatile, but I do think that Joe Biden looks stronger today than he has in a long time. We'll see if it lasts. The people who make this show, our producers, Patricia Jacob and Priscilla Alabi, board operator and engineer, Debbie Daughtry, sound designer and director, and all-around cool guy, Jay Cowett, digital editor, Polly Urungu, David Gable is our executive assistant, and finally, our fearless leader and senior producer, Amber Hall, and a special thanks to Lee Hill as well. And of course, you can call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.